Welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod and this is episode number 28. So this is the second in the Punch In Punch Out series uh, captured at Dundee Design Festival. Basically people came along, selected a question from the rack. They then used the, the lovely Punch In machine shown on the, the cover art of this week's podcast and then they came in for a sort of two to five minute conversation um, with either myself, Lyle or Kate. So again, thanks to them for stepping in when I wasn't there. And then once we'd finished the recording, um, the guests got to add their own question to the rack, which meant that the questions and the conversations completely changed and it was completely diverse over the, the sort of five days of the festival. Um, and I mean, over the last couple of weeks, I've had an amazing time just actually going through and listening to all those conversations. Um, so many interesting little stories, thoughts, ideas, um, and some completely bizarre answers as well. So I've worked out, I've got enough content to create four episodes um, in the sort of Punch In, Punch Out series. Obviously put out one last week, one this week, um, and then we're going to take a bit of a break because I didn't want to sort of bore you with the same content for a month. Um, so we're going to go back to some sort of more um, individual creatives focused podcasts for the next few weeks and then Punch In, Punch Out will pop back up again. And that's really it. Um, all that used to be said is I hope you enjoy this little collection um, of varied conversations. And let's go in. So this is episode number 28 and this is Punch In, Punch Out number two. Uh, so my name is Claire Brennan. Uh, I am a curator and a lecturer in visual arts practice at Aberdeen University. Um, and I co-curate and co-founded um, Neon Digital Arts Festival as well in the city. And what's on your card? Okay, the question is, how do you start something? Um, I think I picked this question probably because the start of something is all usually like the most exciting bit. Um, and I'm thinking in terms of like something like this, starting a festival or starting a project or starting developing an idea. So I don't know, I think there's lots of different ways to start things, to make things happen. Um, but usually it involves getting something out of your head um, and telling it to people, first of all speaking to people that you trust and that you value their opinion. So probably sharing to begin with and, um, and then beginning to sort of, yeah, develop that and see if you can make it a tangible thing. So going from a sort of conceptual idea to a physical reality, I guess. So as part of that process, would you, pref- do you, you tend to prefer digital or like physical documentation of that so would you use post-its and stick them up on the wall or would you just use a text file type stuff Mm. Um, I'd probably type something up first I'm kind of a fan of having a bit of an overview statement type thing so that I can sort of I don't when I'm speaking to people about it I don't waffle so much I can kind of articulate it so I spend a wee bit of time just kind of uh, trying to pinpoint the thing that I mean the idea that I want to start with. Um, but then I guess, yeah, that's kind of a good point to have something to share that 
make sense, hopefully, to people. Um, but I guess it's about not being, not developing that too much that you become too precious over it and you're not willing to kind of be flexible on it. Um, but yeah, so I'd probably start, I guess, start digitally in terms of typing something up or I guess could be analog, writing something down, pen, paper. So as part of that process, if you, so say you had an idea and you've taken it to those people that you trust and they've gone, no, nah, it's nonsense, it's wrong. <laughs> That's a shame what, what, what happens then? <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of an occasion that that might have happened. I think usually people don't tend to just rubbish it. They would say something like, yeah, that's an all right idea, but what about if you brought in this? Or they, you know, like, maybe that's always been my experience anyway of like, the community in Dundee is like, you know, people don't tend to just sort of shun ideas. They're quite open to them. And it's about, um, you know, contributing to make it a better thing. So it's maybe not uh, the thing that you started off with, but, um, yeah, those conversations tend to not just be an end point, but just like another step towards making it happen. It's, uh, I'm Neil Cooney. Uh, I'm a place management consultant in Dundee, and uh, I'm going to answer whether I'm for real or not. And are you for real? Um, probably not. Probably not real enough. I think that's sometimes uh, in the back of my mind, particularly when working or being involved in something such as the Design Festival or something that's significantly cultural in Dundee. I guess I'll always ask myself that question. I'm not formally from a design background or from anything, anything remotely like that. So when working with practitioners, when working with creative, really, in this instance, really creative people, I do find myself asking myself, you know, am I for real in this, in this environment, in this, uh, yeah, within all this? And uh, it's difficult to quantify what real actually means. But I think from, from what you've said, it, it means being honest, I suppose, and being open to things. Um, and sometimes it probably means just having a go. Yeah, yeah, no, I think, I think I can just handle that kind of thing. I guess from a, having been, having had a classical hip-hop upbringing, being for real is, I think it's about credibility. Um, but I suppose to, to kind of second-guess what I've been saying is that, you know, how, how do you, what, in, what, what does that credibility entail? Is it about your education? Is it about your successes? Like, how would you... Uh, how would you justify being real or being credible within this, and particularly within a city like Dundee, when it is the kind of cross-pollination of um, practitioners and um, who else? everyone else that gets involved, you know, practitioners, council members, general public, you know, it just seems to be quite all, the, all the, the dots are being joined across the board. So while I'm asking myself, am I for real? Do you know, does it really matter at this point, I guess? Mm, I think that's true. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the, the, what you, you touched on, the, the collaborations, the, the cross-pollination of it is, is really important. I think that the best things often come 
where you get that Venn diagram of two people's practices that then cross over yeah. and then you add more to the mix and then those skills and those insights then develop and you add to the experience and I think especially in the work that I've done the best stuff I've done is, is collaborations with, with other people and not necessarily within a field that I know well enough or I'm comfortable in necessarily like podcasting or audio engineering or anything like that I just thought I'll have a go um, and I think that's the sort of attitude that exists here and it should absolutely be encouraged yeah no absolutely um, and you know I'd, I'd be the first to encourage someone probably that was that had the same uh, I don't know lack of confidence in certain ways I guess that's maybe what it can come across as but um, when you see the successes and you see how far the city has come and, and, and even how the design festival has grown on, on, on last year um, it is reassuring that confident or not whether folk think that this is their area of expertise or not you know folk are getting well and truly involved and uh, again as, as we kind of mentioned just at the start, you know, one of the best things about this has been speaking to the kids, the parents, um, the, the general public, people who have come from Dundee, people who have come from Edinburgh, and hearing their responses to this, uh, to this festival and just how much they've enjoyed it. So. Okay, so my name's Shona Mason. I'm a dentist. I teach in the dental school in Dundee, but there's a lot of reasons why I would like to not be a dentist anymore and do other stuff. And what's the question okay, on your so part? The question I picked was, if not now, then when? Because that's a big issue for myself and my husband at the minute. We're just beginning to get into our 50s. We're looking at life. The kid last child's about to leave home. We're, as I said, we don't really like being dentists, even though for me, it's given me a lot of really good opportunities. I've got a great job. It's brilliant to work with students. I get to go and work in the Amazon every year and do dentistry out there. That's all fantastic. But if I got told I couldn't ever do dentistry again, I wouldn't be gutted. But if I injured my hands and couldn't make anymore, then I would be devastated. So I'm kind of looking at, a I've made a five-year plan of how to become more and more of a textile artist. I've always been a maker since I was little. But now it's so much easier with the internet. You've got access to people and ideas, and there's so much going on in Dundee, and I just get so frustrated. So I'm busy working in my paid job, and then every evening on my days off, I'm trying to, to make and come up with ideas and learn how to design and learn about the process so that in five years' time, when the kids are all finished and the mortgage is done, I can just go. I can go and do something. I'll have 20, 25 years of making and being some sort of textile artist. And it won't matter really what the income is, because I've, I've done that bit, I've done the expensive bit of life. So then other people, that's how I came with a friend, Jennifer, who works in the dental school. She's temping there, but she's, a she's an art graduate. She's a knitwear designer. And it's brilliant fun to have her in the dental school, and we can chat art and design and knitting. Um, but she's saying, just get on, just do it, just get on with it, just do your sabbatical, just take your time out. But we're being sensible and going, well, we've got our children to finish supporting and we've got this. So it's a, if not now, then when? Because you think five years' time, you might not be around anymore and you might be thinking, oh, I didn't get that done that I really wanted to get done. But yeah. then I'm getting to make lots of stuff in the learning process. Mm. 
in that time. So you running, are you doing this constantly on the side and at nights and in your spare time then you're trying to build this, the practice over time? Yes, okay. and it's like I'm trying to build a portfolio and learn lots of techniques and when I get ideas of designs I'm just writing them down and then I've got a course booked later in the year where you sort of can learn a bit about how to turn a design into your thing and it's le- trying to gather all that information just now so that I can then... I'll be ready to launch as it were. But at the same time, I'm making connections. I've got a project going on just now where I'm doing a commission for a commission. There's an artist I really like, Jane Hunter, who does maps out of Tweed. And I bought some of her work before Christmas. And then she, she's in a book by a network designer that I really like. And she'd said, oh, I really like this hoodie. So I messaged her and I said, if you really want this hoodie, I can make it for you and maybe in exchange for some art. So she's doing me a beautiful piece of art and I'm knitting her this jumper. And I kind of feel like that's... It's a nice way to just get started, sort of getting into that world and sort of getting heard about, but also trying to find where I want to be in that. Because at the minute I do lots of different bits and pieces and I think if you're actually going to make a living out of something, you need to have um, an image or an idea or something that people know what you are about. Uh, Sorry, Joe Bletcher. uh, my, well, it's more of a statement than a question. Designer should be a protected term. Um, and I think I chose that because people can become very precious about the word designer, about the word designer. Um, and people that are designers probably think it should be protected and people that don't know about design don't really care. Um, so I think probably no, it shouldn't be because everybody can design and everybody does design. Um, understanding design is slightly different and understanding kind of what it means to design um, I think is important but I don't believe necessarily designer needs to be protected. Do you think the, the term designer then is a barrier to other people? Yeah I think it can be, I think it conjures up all sorts of um, images because of its association with sort of styling and high-end products and expensive things, um, I think it can be a barrier to general understanding of what it is for, for people that have nothing to do with the industry or nothing to do with... But it can be a helpful term as well for um, people understanding what it is you do if you're, if you're approaching people to discuss uh, projects, for example. Yeah, yeah, I think it can, and I think in the right, in the right circumstances and in, in certain industries, people need to know these things, but I think um, I suppose in that case it's a bit of, it's a, bit of a think of the term now but uh, yeah it means different things in different contexts so you probably need to qualify it a little bit when speaking to people sure it's interesting that you know you say that it's often people see it attributed to sort of handbags and 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 high-end items and design as a term often that is what people see because that's what you know marketing has 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 put design in in that in that context for people um and, and and you know does that cause problems? Does that then does that does that tarnish the idea of what design is for what maybe is more constructive design in some way? Um, I think it sort of oversimplifies probably, or it's become something that people associate with the sort of styling end of things. I think design is a more kind of fundamental process and act than that across all sorts of different, whether it's constructive or whether it's actually a way of thinking, whether it's a way of actually problem setting, problem framing and problem solving, all of these things that kind of come together under that word. But I think people do understand what it is, they just probably are 
can be put off by the, the term designer. And so therefore, when thinking about how to promote or explore and talk about design, it needs to be a bit more multifaceted. So if design uh, shouldn't be a protected term, what, what would you suggest? It should, what, what, what would be the solution? I'm going to say it's not a protected term, though. It's not a protected term. So anyone can, you mean, so anyone can use it? Anyone can use it, I think, as long as you're, um, as long as you can talk, I'm not going to say talk intelligently or talk kind of passionately and interestedly about what it is that you mean by that and you can set that context in what you're talking about it, I think maybe that's more important than trying to keep it for a particular group. And, and, and do you think maybe... Um, it depends who's trying to protect it. Well, that's, right? that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> so, so, you know, I see maybe academic areas like universities and stuff perhaps um, try to own the term a lot more. Certainly where we are in Dundee, I think it can be it can be uh, seen, you know, we don't have a big external creative design scene, I think. I'm, I mean, uh, that's probably the end of being the, the interviewee. <laughs> Maybe we should just stop it there. <laughs> that was beautiful. Okay, um, my name is Daniel Allen and I'm an independent games developer working in Dundee. Um, my question is, uh, what is your favorite dessert? And I would probably have to say my favorite dessert is a trifle. Trifle. I feel like it's a perfect construction of like everything that makes desserts good. Cream, fruit for the health, the vitamins, um, and the custard as well, and the sponge. It's got. It's, I mean, it's it's like part cake. It's part like like dessert. Dessert. It's oh, it's got everything. No, it's got everything. The sponge and the trifle. Yeah. Soggy or not. <sighs> quite soggy like I mean it's supposed to be soaked right like mm -hmm. and when you get a good trifle like done with a little bit of alcohol in it and you get that alcohol soaked sponge it's kind of like it's almost like a tiramisu it's like the best part of a tiramisu brought into this dessert and then with all this other stuff it's just it's just amazing man it's like perfectly constructed yeah what, what about you Ryan what's your favorite dessert favorite dessert good question mm. I'm a big crumble fan Okay. I'd probably have to say rhubarb. Okay. Yeah, um, that's a good choice. So that kind of tartness. Yeah, I like, yeah. A, I like the tartness. And rhubarb's quite unusual. You don't have it very often. No, um, not in anything else. No, and then just a good, a good vanilla ice cream, just classic. Not custard? Or like creme d'anglaise or something? I could go custard, to be fair. Yeah. A little bit. And then you don't want too much because then it's going to melt the ice cream too quickly. Yeah. Um, that's what I find. Like, yeah, you, you know... If you, if you put ice cream on hot desserts, sometimes it just turns it into water almost. And you might but, as well have had it with cream, right? If yeah, you leave it, it too long, you might as well have just had, had, had thick cream with it that wouldn't get like melted down. And it becomes very time sensitive. Yeah. Ice cream like and hot dessert. Do you like that kind of pressure to eat a dessert? I know, yeah. They should develop a slow melting ice cream for yeah. hot dessert. Try it with astronaut ice cream. Try it with what? <laughs> astronaut ice cream. What what's that? You know, like you know, like the it's like it's almost like powdered foam kind of. Uh, it's like dried ice cream basically um, that they eat up in space because obviously moisture is not necessarily a good thing up there. Um, so they have this ice cream, and it's just it, 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 you can just it kind of crumbles. Um, I don't know. You could try that. Yeah, I've heard it tastes yeah. good. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> never been to space, so I've never needed to eat it, but. So you can only eat it in space? You could eat it down here if you want. 
<laughs> but why would you when you could have normal ice cream? Unless, of course, you're not wanting to have a time-sensitive dessert, in which case you might replace it. I don't know. Indeed. Maybe custard just makes life easier. I'd say so. Custard makes a lot of things easier. So if you could just uh, tell me your name, please. It's Gemma Parkinson. And what did you choose, Gemma? So my um, topic is there's no such thing as a bad client. Um, being a client myself, um, I feel that sometimes we get a bit of a bad rep. <laughs> my husband is a designer, um, but I'm on the client side and work in single malt whiskey. And we um, have lots of relationships with multiple agencies, right from packaging, design, to big, above-the-line advertising, to everything um, within the finer touch points of a distillery and how it works. And um, I, I take some... Um, I, I totally recognise why this has been posed as a topic and why um, some clients would maybe disagree. But, yes, I, I think... From a client's perspective, it's actually really difficult to know what you're looking for before you actually see what it is and what's delivered. And with the, the, the relationship you've got with a designer, you're coming from a, as the client, you're coming from a place of confidence and knowledge and insight into what you're trying to achieve, but you're not the best person to do it. And you're looking for an expert to help you make that connection and to sort of show you the way, but often they have to show it to you before you yourself know where you're going. And that's we're in the challenge, it lies. And as a client, do you expect your designers to produce more than one solution and present different options and to help you understand yes. how you're Yes, and I'm acutely aware of being handled as well in these um, presentation um, uh, in response to sort of briefs. I recognise that they might be showing me four different routes and they'll be presenting them in the ways that perhaps they're wanting to control and influence how they want the client to respond. And I'm always dead keen to understand from the designer's point of view, which is their favorite, which are they most excited about? Because it's obviously moved them. Sometimes they don't reveal very much when they're presenting. And as a client, you're trying to decode what it was that drove the designer to make that decision. Because perhaps as a client, you've missed something and you're looking for that creative expertise to, to guide you. Well, do you feel that maybe the designer should be more uh limiting in their choice of what they bring into a meeting and that would maybe be an easier way of approaching it uh, so you know what they're actually happy with rather than maybe having too many options. Yeah, that's a fair point as well. I've been on the side of both of those examples where there's just been an absolute plethora of ideas and mm. how do you disseminate and how do you know what's the best one and equally I've had designers and creative agencies come back with one idea. They're so confident about it they felt they didn't need to produce anything else. And that might have been the winning idea, but without any context, it was difficult to know that that idea that they'd poured over for weeks was the right idea as a client, fresh face coming in and making a decision then and there. So it's, it's a tough one to call, and I actually don't envy a designer's role in that sense. I'm going to be uh, slightly cantankerous here and say, you know, when, you, when you're approaching getting new, new designers in to, to, to work on a project, how do you approach... Uh, finding the new designer do you expect the designer to pitch uh, do you expect them to produce visuals and do you produce a budget oh that's good <laughs> um, it, it depends on the project if we want designers to pitch we generally re um, recognize that there should be a fee attached from the client we sh 
should be expected to pay something. And that's always a difficult conversation at the start, sort of where those boundaries end and where, um, where the expectations should, should lie. So it's always trying to be upfront about what both sides are expecting. Um, I, I've had different agencies respond in different ways. Yes, I would expect a budget. We've often had the case where agencies pitch the most amazing ideas that will get us all excited in the room. We go for it. And then in the days and weeks that follow, the budget falls apart and, and actually that amazing idea has to be whittled down and truncated and chopped because actually the big idea can't be delivered and all you're left with is the kernel of, of what was once a great idea, a shadow of a good idea. On, on, a, on a sort of budgetary note then, do, do, you, um, do you set a budget generally for your projects to your, to your designers or do you expect them to cost it and come back to you with with hopefully something that will come under what you've got in your head? Um, I've done both and been totally stung when I haven't given a budget because it's come back with lots of zeros at the end. Generally, I'll set a budget um, and that's set by the commercial realities of, of the business and what we're trying to achieve. So I would normally set a budget. Invariably, the designers always go over and I think as clients, we would expect a little bit of that as well. So we might uh, factor that in when we're establishing the budget at the beginning. Excellent. So my name is Claire Dial. I'm Senior Events Officer for Dundee City Council. And uh, the question I have chosen today is, what is success? Which I love, which is very closely linked in my mind to who do you think you are, which is also available outside. Um, but what is success? I think that I have been really lucky in my life that I've had some time to stop and think about what I consider success. And I think there's something important if I could pass on some wisdom to anybody it would be do you know what have a cup of tea have a little sit take some time out in your garden and go what are your non-negotiables what are the things that are most important to you in your life and then that will be your measure of success I don't think it's something that um, is, should be imposed on you I think that it's too easy and we succumb all the time from pressure from other people to be something or to achieve something or to compare yourself to something. And I think if you have been lucky enough to spend the time um, in your own head going, I know what's important to me. And I think if you look at successful people, quite often they're so self-assured and they're so amazing because they've spent that time going, what's important to me are these things. I will spend my time doing the things that are important to me. And it's, it's a place of luxury, because quite often you have to do loads of stuff that is not important to you. But if you know that you're doing it, because um, then ultimately you get to do the things that are important to you. So for some people, holidays are what's important. They want two holidays a year, and their job is about getting the money to go on the holiday. And that's their success. They go, brilliant, I don't necessarily like my job, it doesn't give me fulfillment, it doesn't do all of the nice things you might like, but I get my holidays. And that's, ta-ta, that's me successful. Um, oh, it's like, it's like, it's like uh, the Deacon Blue song. What's the Deacon Blue song? A ship called Dignity, where he's, you know, folk are like, who are you? You're sweeping the streets. And the guy's going, what's important to me is that I'm saving up for my boat and I'm going to be sailing around the world. Uh, you know, they'll ask me how I got it. I'll say I saved my money because that's my measure of success. I think that's one of the best um, and most succinct answers to that question whenever I've asked it. Um, I love the concept of non-negotiables. 
Ah, uh, um, yeah. So I've got to ask, what are your non-negotiables? Um, uh, my non-negotiables are my children, my family, actually. And it took me a lot of thinking to get to that um, because I love the work that I do and I love events and I love people and I love fun stuff. But actually, what I need to do is to know that I've got time for them and I need, uh, I need the space in my life that is, they're all sick, I need to go home today. Or uh, in a weird way, I used to do a really high pressure job where you were, um, what's the word, indispensable. God, I hate being indispensable. I mean, I love it. Everybody wants to be indispensable. We all want to be really important. But equally, I hate it. And, and that's been a change since having a family because I can't be indispensable to m- my job. I'm indispensable to my children. And that's, that, that's my non, at the moment, that's my non-negotiable. And it doesn't have to be the same forever. But yeah, to know that I've got time with my family um, when I need it is, is my current non-negotiable. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I've reserved the right to change that in future. <laughs> I'm Ross Fraser McLean. And your question? Uh, and my question is time, why? Explain. Uh, which is quite a, a vague one for me to <laughs> try and uh, condense into a podcast. But um, I guess uh, um, we're all governed by time, aren't we? Some more than others. Uh, I suppose that. Um, Time is uh, an agreement met by many um, in terms of uh, respect. I guess that um, my mind ties to history rather than a tight deadline, whereas I think that potentially that's not the same for many other individuals and institutions. what, what's, what's your relationship with, uh, with time? Uh, do you feel it's a good one or a bad one? Uh, I've always had quite a um, unique uh, kind of connection with time uh, in terms of uh, I, um, I've, uh, I've got a condition called dyspraxia, which means that I, um, you know, I'm, uh, time doesn't exactly exist in my mind. It doesn't, I don't have an internal clock. Um, but um, at the same time, boom, boom, I uh, work with it in terms of I, I tend to uh, freeze time through the process of photography. Um, and of course, within that, you know, living within the moment, it's uh, very important to, to be attuned to the process of time and how, uh, when best to, to kind of connect and select uh, moments. Uh, and turn them into a form of a photograph, I guess. So, do you feel that your your your, your dyspraxia sort of made uh, was was your what got you maybe into photography in the first place? Was it something that led to that, or is it? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that um, we all, you know, as time ticks on, uh, I think many people think in a linear thought pattern. So they go from like A to B. They can express themselves through written words quite kind of adequately and easily. Um, whereas uh, for myself. Um, I tend to think in circles, um, so it's quite good if there's many different uh, elements all coming together within one frame of a photograph, but um, not so great if I'm trying to write a paragraph of a, an email. Mm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, my brain is designed for uh, what I do, 
but not so well designed for uh, the, the majority of people's brains and how they operate within the world. And, 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 and do you find uh, um, that that uh, has had negative effects in sort of how you work as a commercial person? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're all governed by time, aren't we? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I guess uh, um, it's definitely a, a continual, um, you know, your biggest strength is also your biggest weakness. Your biggest weakness is also your biggest strength. I guess that um, there's a, a kind of um, continual frustration uh, within myself uh, and my own relation with time. Um, but I have to, I guess, be thankful for all the, the kind of positive things that um, the way my brain operates in uh, as, as a, has allowed me to see and witness thus far. Could, Leo, could I get you to read your question again, please? I forgot to start the recording. Um, which one of your friends would you eat first? And what's your answer? Uh, Kyle. 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 What and why? Why would you? Why would you eat him uh, first? Because he is. Uh, because um, he isn't one of my bestest friends. That's a good answer for that. Right, right. What's he done to deserve to be eaten? Uh, I don't know. Is there, is there anyone else you'd like to eat? Um. <laughs> uh. Ross. <laughs> why would you? Why would you eat Ross? Uh, because he's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could. I could. I could see that. <laughs> uh, and if you were to eat Ross, would you eat Ross with some vegetables? No. Would you eat Ross with some fruit? No chips. Chips. <laughs> With, would you put tomato sauce on Ross and eat him with chips? Uh, no, I don't like tomato sauce. <laughs> uh, just Ross and chips. Hi, I'm Leanne Fischler, and my question is, everyone is, a, everyone is a designer, which isn't really a question, but I'm treating it as, as, as a question. Well, um, they're statements too. <laughs> it's, a sta it's a statement that I'm going to discuss. Um, basically, the, I love, love the idea that every single person makes and does things to solve problems and that is essentially what design is so if we broaden the description of design really far out to include things like um, just repairing your bike in a kind of clever way or kind of simply fixing things quickly with what you have available that's fundamentally what design is for me um, which I guess for me leaves the interesting question of what is the role of people who've studied design if suddenly everyone's a designer? And I quite like the idea that we might be the facilitators and the ones to make it happen and the ones to share the stories of, of everyone who's designing and to get more people designing. But that's just an idea. So if everyone's a designer, then it, what's the role of university within that? Oh, well, I guess the university is there to create the facilitators who create the designers. I don't know, maybe this is going too deep. <laughs> but um, university, I don't know, one of the main things I learned about university is kind of 
how to tell stories, I guess, in a kind of engaging way and how to share stuff with people and how to create coherent paths through a process. And that's definitely something that um, like everyday people when they design and solve problems aren't doing because they don't realise the value in it. So if we can kind of guide people through the design process, um, through our knowledge of it that we get at university, then that kind of creates a better, a better world for people who want to make things. And, and if, if design is for everybody and everyone is a designer, and essentially what we're saying is we're solving problems through using design and that's what, what design is, is there a quality aspect to that that comes in? I mean, does that, is that what differentiates everyday designers from, say, professional designers, or, you know, how do you, or is there a, you know, do you see a, a, a defining thing? Well, I mean, I don't know, define quality, because quality might just mean it looks pretty in the end, or something like that. And, like, yes, we are able to present things better as professional designers, but um, the quality, um, it could be way more deep than that. And it kind of, I guess, comes from the problem that's being solved and the kind of in-depth knowledge of it. And I guess, like, when you think about it, when you're solving a problem in your community, the people who are live in the community know it best, so they're going to kind of have the best insights into doing it, and that creates the best quality in the end. But, I don't know, this is my definition of design more in terms of making and problem-solving and maybe if you look at like graphic design, which is um, if it was like purely visual kind of stuff, then I guess that is something that we would be better at if we studied at university. Just like time to build up the skills. Okay, so my name is Andy Flack. I'm uh, a designer. And uh, what was the other question? <laughs> what do I? <laughs> question. Oh, and what's the the question on the card? What's my favourite Pantone? Uh, yeah, that's a good one because um, it used to be a time when we did a lot of stuff in solid colours and it was hard to find the colour to just do the job you want. And reds particularly for some reason, uh, there was either too pink, too orange, I didn't quite hit the red. There was one particular Pantone uh, colour which is all out there by itself in the reds. In fact, it's not even in the red section of the book, or not in my book, it's kind of in a completely different place, randomly positioned. I think it's 485, but I may be completely wrong on that one, so we'll get that right later. Um, but it's a proper red. It says, I am red. There's no doubt about it. It's not pink, it's not orange, no, it's not going into some kind of weird shade. It just is red. So if you want to use, if you want to do it for a facade sign or something like that, or something just is solid, it's fantastic. Prints really well, goes well with greys and, and other colours, and it just stands out really well. So that is my favourite Pantone colour. Uh, Andrina Kent. Okay, Andrina, what's your statement or question? Beef, chicken, ham, halloumi, forever. And how do you feel about that? Um, well, I think that as a society, we are becoming more aware of where food produce is coming from. And I think that's important. I think, um, sadly, there, there was a time, and I think it includes now as well, where people don't really care where their food produce comes from. They don't care if their lambs coming from New Zealand or their blueberries are coming from Chile. 
Um, and I think now people are becoming more aware of supporting local producers. Um, and I think as well, people are becoming more aware of um, having a, a more balanced diet with regard to meat and, and non-meat dishes. Um, personally, I, I use um, halloumi and other um, cheese products as a substitute for meat a few times a week. I only have meat maybe twice a week, if that, because I, I realise the environmental impact of having meat every day um, and that that's, that's a negative thing on the environment. And uh, situations at the moment, particularly where there's like crises and shortage of produce like avocados and uh, I can't remember what else it is, there's some, I think salads in general because courgette and maybe bringing it more to people's attention as well that their food is coming in from further afield than they might have been thinking? Yes, definitely. Um, and with that, I, th I think because we have these large supermarket chains now that can, can cater for every cuisine all the time, people just expect this on demand. And, and before, um, when we had a greengrocers and a butchers and a baker's that you would go to, you, you didn't have that. I suppose it is a luxury, but also it's, it is damaging the environment. If you look at the carbon footprint that um, importing these products results in, it's, it's quite phenomenal. And do you think uh, maybe part of the solution then to this problem would be to, to create uh, more localised uh, resellers of, of produce, local produce sellers again? Yes, uh, I do. I think that is very important. I think Dundee somewhere that has recognised that certainly with um, Certainly some of the uh, uh, grocers that I, I go to, they, they do try to source locally. And meat that I buy, I don't, I don't tend to just buy any old meat from Tesco, for example. I'll go to my local butcher and look for local suppliers. Um, and I do try to cook what is in season. I think you obviously, as a, a consumer of food, you get a lot more from food that's in season, better flavour. And... Do you think uh, agricultural um, growers and uh, farms that rear animals could possibly uh, look at more innovative methods to get in their produce directly to the consumer with all those sort of new technologies and other things that now exist then, then that might help this as well? That's, that's quite a tricky question. I. I think we could use technology to our advantage, however I do think we have to move away from um, monoculture and intensive farming because that, that is just damaging. And no one really knows for sure what if GM crops are problematic. I mean I am actually a scientist, um, I don't perform any form of genetic engineering myself but I do know the benefits of genetic modification, however we, we do have to put more we're funding into research to see what the long-term effects of this is. Uh, I'm Erasmus McKenna, and I'm a theatre maker based here in Dundee. And my question is, does art and design need to become more political at this point in history? Um, I think that if you look at the madness of the last two years, and um, kind of regardless of what you think about it, the kind of the whirlwind that's come from it all and the kind of the, the blitz of it, there's a real well, when you look at politics and you look at kind of class politics, I think there's a real disconnect with people voting based on their class now. And that's, I think, part of the trickery of, of right-wing parties. And I suppose that at this point, 
propaganda becomes almost like background noise because there's so much of it all the time, every day. And I mean, that question of does art and design need to become more political, I think is essential because if, it, if art and design don't become more politicized through their process or through their outcome, then immediately I think you get stuck in, in people being bombarded with one kind of propaganda. And I think that art and design is kind of another art, another form to, to influence that. Yeah, I think I mean, we've seen with the recent changes in, in the politics and the, the way that things come across in this sort of air quotes post-truth era um, and how you can use and abuse social media to your gain and how those little networks that you live within can make things seem like a vote is going to go a certain way but then you're only ever experiencing that little bubble. So I think that politics does definitely need to burst out of that um, and like addressing social issues and talking about things. Even like what I find now is comedy is much more politicised. Totally, and, yeah. And it's really enjoyable because it's intelligent yeah. Yeah. and it's not just fart jokes and like, or I don't know, like Roy Chubby Brown. It's like it's mm-hmm. an actual art form. It feels like there's much more value in it. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. And I think as well, particularly when you look at music and as well with television and the way they're presented, people seem... Well, maybe not even necessarily now, but there just seem there seem to be people who are very switched on to a kind of a way of making art that exists to be, you know, have a beauty or a function, but also manages to 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 influence people's thoughts. I think that Dundee has has got a fantastic history of that with people like Michael Mara and 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 people that surrounded him, and as well with other kind of musicians and theatre makers, particularly Kathleen Jamie, the poet, and and Kareem Polwart. Their work is so rooted in in what they think without telling people what they should think, and I think that's incredibly valuable as an art form because, I mean, there's that expression that politics is life, and I agree with it, but I don't think that it, I don't even think, I don't think it should be. You know what I mean? Like there has to, there should be a freedom, but I think that particularly now in in this kind of in these past two or three years, we kind of live in in a world where it feels like everything has to have a message. And the question that surrounds that is whether it should or not. And that was episode 28. Um, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed sort of going through and editing them all together. Um, yeah, it was really fun, really enjoyable. If you're new to the podcast... Um, please do go and follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. It's at CCC Dundee. Um, it's the best place to sort of keep up to date with all the developments, all the releases. And also on Facebook, uh, you can go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee. And that will give you again all the content. So whatever channel you like, um, all the information is there, really easy to access. And beyond that, uh, I've created a series of products to help um, sustain and support the podcast um, I'm putting a fair amount of time into this every week and I'm doing it completely for free and on my own um, so in a way to sort of cover some of the costs I've created prints, badges and sort of mini quote book based upon uh, all the content and the conversations that have happened throughout the podcast so you can go to cccdundee.com forward slash store um, and everything is on there available to buy um, and I would just say that if you have enjoyed the podcast if you have got a lot out of it 
just buy a badge, throw me a pound. Um, I'd really appreciate it and it, it will help me sustain this and going forward it will really help uh, cover some of the costs and allow me to do this for as long as possible. And that's it for this week. Um, I hope you enjoyed it and I will see you next week. Goodbye.